0: According to the American Psychological Association's guidelines for psychological practice with sexual minorities, there is an acknowledgment that much of the psychological research on sexual minority persons reflect the experiences of those with more privilege. Did you know that queer people of color may face double or even triple the marginalization? What happens when one exists at the crossroads of systemic racism, heteronormativity, and often within communities that haven't fully embraced queer identities. How do we as mental health professionals practice and check our own biases and create spaces of inclusion for queer clients of color? Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Zen as part of our series for black history month today we have dr price a licensed psychologist in group practice at the wellness 360 in dallas texas dr price specializes in working with lgbtq individuals and same-sex couples to explore emotional relational psychological and sexual well-being dr price has also conducted research in the area of intimacy and sexual satisfaction in same-sex couples, as well as research on normalizing BDSM, polyamory, and kink in couples. In fact, Dr. Price has featured publications including Let's Talk About Sex, Ethical Considerations, and Survey Research with Minority Populations. In his work with LGBTQ populations, Dr. Price treats the anxiety, depression, and PTSD within a context of intersecting marginalized identities. Dr. Price works with adolescents, adults, couples, and groups and draws from several evidence-based therapies including CBT, DBT, reality therapy, and mindfulness body awareness techniques. As a queer Black psychologist, Dr. Price will be discussing the provision of therapy services for queer people of color, and how to reduce bias and microaggression. Dr. Price, thank you so much for being on our episode today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And such a wonderful introduction. (laughs) So I appreciate that and giving me the opportunity to, you know, get my message across.
0: And speaking about your message, it is such an important message, because you're talking about the importance not only addressing bias and microaggressions for bipoc folks, you're also talking about the intersectional identities. Before we get into that, though, can you tell us more about how you got into this work? Share with us any memorable events?
1: Yeah, of course. So I started off kind of like my career as it relates to you know psychology, mental health, and all of that through public health, actually. And I was working with children, kind of like as a behavioral health coach, you know, straight out of, you know, my undergraduate career. And I, I noticed a lot of disparities within the families and the children. And it started like with the adults. So I was like, okay, well, let me switch to educating more of the adults. So I developed my own like health coaching business and was really focused on helping like people of color. And then as I related kind of like my training and my experience, because I have received certification, I was just more so well, I need to go back so I can get, you know, more credibility, more knowledge and how I can actually help these emotional and mental health needs of this population. So that's what drove me to going back and getting my doctoral degree. And throughout like that experience, just you know, being at Midwestern University where I graduated in Glendale, Arizona it was amazing to be exposed to different types of people and notable experiences kind of is working with individuals that did have issues talking about like their identity and fitting into like the world. Cause living in Arizona, it's predominantly white population. So speaking with those that did identify as BIPOC and how they kind of like identify themselves and getting kind of over all of the, the microaggressions and kind of like the internalized racism that they had for themselves so working with individuals that way and really it was during the time what happened with you know george floyd and another very memorable event was doing that at our you know school our university we had to get approval and had to do a lot of things getting involved with other organizations it was the veterinarian students of medicine because it was kind of like a holistic school different types of medical programs that were there and trying to really gather all the students of color, because it's a small percentage at that university. And it was more so like, okay, we're really gonna do this, this during COVID, we're gonna have people mass. we're really gonna talk. And I shared some of my personal experiences and it was really great to see all the student body kind of unite together to help the black community that was really, you know, at a need during that time. I'm not saying that it's not really a need now, it certainly is, but it was publicized, like as a need for this population.
0: Wow. It's amazing you did this during COVID and shortly after George Floyd's murder. And really taking this uh, public health perspective, you're reaching out to a lot of BIPOC students on campus. And wow, that, that's amazing. I'm, I'm also curious about, so, so it, it seems like that series of these events have shaped how you got into this work. And you said you went back and got your uh, doctorate. Yeah. Can you just walk me through that process?
1: It definitely wasn't the easiest process. There was a lot of people that were against the fact that I was going back to get my doctoral degree. My family was more so like, oh, financially, like, it just makes sense to just continue to work. Like, you have your own business. Just continue to move forward that way. So it definitely was, like, like, an easy conversation to have with my family. But after talking to kind of, like, you know, other health professionals, like, in the field, it was like, this is something that you really want. Like, it'll give you the credibility to do more so if you're able to you know go back to school and do that why not because you know think about the cost especially a private institution like midwestern university that's kind of like a quarter of a million dollars that you're throwing into your education but like looking at the statistics where it's like you know four percent of like actually psychologists of color and even smaller number when you go up to the psychiatrist and all of that and especially when you're looking at black psychologists specifically and black psychologists in arizona um even smaller numbers. So I was just looking at like, okay, what is it going to mean for the community? What is it going to mean for, you know, like people in the population to be there and to sit there? So I was like, okay, I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm doing this for, you know, the community and kind of like the greater purpose that I feel like my life has, which is to help people that look like me, um, just improve their health. So that's kind of what drove me back to go to school and that kept me in the program because there was only, I think it was only three black students, counting me, in my cohort. And we all like got together and like really built a community within like our own cohort to help us get through the program because there were rough moments. I'm not going to say that it was all ease, Um, but yeah.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's like the drive you're you're doing this for the community, and really, speaking of community, you you also talk about the intersecting work, uh, BIPOC plus LGBTQ or queer populations. How did you lean into that direction?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's personal experience. I do identify as queer, you know, and I'm Black, so it's just like, oh, well, I'm a queer person of color myself. And it's just when I started to kind of see clients who did identify both at those ends, it was more so they felt that they were jealous. So, I know self-disclosure is not something that's always like looked the greatest upon, like in sessions. But it really helped them relate to me as a therapist, where otherwise they're being, you know, like shut down. They felt so more so like okay, from personal experience, and then seeing it kind of in my clinical practice where they're not feeling like they could really like relate or talk about because they were afraid that they were going to be judged. And like, as it relates to kind of like the research, a recent study that was just published last year, researchers conducted like a systematic review looking at how, you know, queer people of color, the treatment outcomes like in mental health and substance abuse programs. And 22 to 29% felt that they were judged and felt that they were microaggressions given, felt that they weren't given the same amount of care kind of as their cisgender heterosexual white counterparts and they terminated treatment prematurely. So it's just looking at the statistics, my personal experience and my clinical experience is like this population is really in need. Let me help this population because like, I can relate to some of those experiences, you know, just within my clinical work as well as just, you know, moving around in the world as a queer Black person. So it's just like I can understand and then I can also get to that point where I'm welcoming and I'm validating them in a space where they might not necessarily feel, you know, great. Because if we look at the history <laughs> just mental health and like clinical history, like people of color have not been treated well, especially, you know, Black, Indigenous, if we're talking about those specific populations. And then also if we look at the LGBT population have not been treated that fairly we look at the history of what has been done in mental health so when you think about both of those intersectional identities together of course they're going to feel a little like oh you know a little wary about disclosing any of that information so i think bringing it down to a level like okay like i see you i'm not just seeing you for these identities i'm seeing you as an individual but i'm also welcoming you into talking about those identities
0: so I really seeing them and appreciating their identity. It's also very disheartening hearing about the numbers there. You said uh, about 25, 29% uh, of folks that aren't, that are terminating treatment prematurely and really not getting the care that they need. So tell us more about your work. And I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, myself included, which is this ongoing journey towards growth and development as a clinician share with us some of the strategies or tips that you have in terms of how to reduce bias in microaggression as clinicians
1: yeah exactly i think it it all starts even like with before like the initial call like what does your website look like is it you using like inclusive language and you do like the intake paperwork is it listing like okay your sex gender identity sexual orientations listing all that like keeping it open and inclusive i think is one of the 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 pieces to the end like when you're actually talking and meeting to the person like saying oh i noticed like you you mark bisexual asexual or whatever that is like how has that been you know in the world for you so opening up is saying like hey i'm welcoming you to talk about this please feel free to do so. And then like, you know, as clients are, sometimes some are slow to warm up. They won't necessarily answer it then, but if you, you know, keep it open, they'll just be like, okay, well, when you ask me this, like I've had several clients that well, I, this is how, like it shows up in the world for me. And, you know, not saying any judgment. I'm not saying that most clinicians are, I mean, like my background, I did do an internship in Utah, which is a very heavily Latter-day Saints, LDS community. And sometimes that identity is met with judgment, like as LGBT and already being a person of color in a predominantly white um, environment sometimes bring on racial stress as well. So sometimes when they identify like, oh, well, you know, I'm bisexual, this met with that judgment. Oh, well, you, you have issues with your sexual identity. So not making any assumptions when they're saying, this is my identity as well.
0: Yeah oh that's such an important delineation it's like this is my identity doesn't mean i have conflict with my identity Mm -hmm. this is just my identity yes oh yeah well can you share with us other tips or ideas that you've seen from your work
1: yeah and then like i I mentioned like the self-disclosure piece once they feel like oh somebody like i can relate to that helps a bit too as well and i'll definitely note. i won't you know, go into detail about it I was like, oh, well, you know, I understand, like, as a queer person, it could be difficult to create a sense of community. And, like, just noting that, oh, there are communities, you know, out there, like, who are you kind of, like, in touch with to create a community with? Because especially individuals kind of, like, in the 18 to 25 population is really a transitional period for them when they're trying to find a community. I like to talk about community things. So who do you talk about? Like, who who can you like relate to like that in your community and specifically pointing out specific communities for them. I know the resource center in Dallas is a great, the community thing that they can go look at to connect with people their age too as well. And then meetups is a great thing if you're looking for LGBT plus community groups too as well. So highlighting, you know, being welcoming, being validating, using inclusive language, speaking about community. I think that those are kind of like the paramount things to work in. And of course, each individual client is gonna bring in like their own issues and their own questions that they have. And especially speaking with those who are in the gender minority population. A lot of the LGBT, like, gets a lot of publicity for those that are sexual minorities, but not a lot get as much as the gender minorities. So it's very, I wouldn't say crucial, but it's really, really validating for you to use, like, the, you know, correct pronouns for them at their traditional phase using their name, not their dead name, and then also, like, highlighting where they're at some individuals might identify, you know, as gender fluid. So it's just like, okay, well, you know, how are you showing up today? It's a simple question rather than making an assumption of just like, Oh, well, you know, you were using she, her two sessions ago. So it's going to be she, her today. Not necessarily.
0: Okay. So even just asking, you know, how would you like to show up today? Mm -hmm. Wow. It it didn't really come, you know, as you're mentioning that, it didn't strike me to even consider and people identify as being gender fluid that you know they may present differently in terms of their identity session by session and the importance of just acknowledging that and being aware
1: yeah yeah exactly especially when you think about gender identity like it's internal gender presentation you know what you see outwardly uh is different as well and you know i do identify as queer gender fluid so for myself when people see me they'll be like oh that's a black woman. Well, no, I actually identify as gender fluid, and I use he/him pronouns. So it's more so like, where are you at? You know, in life, how are you feeling about yourself? So opening that up and not making these assumptions based on what you see outwardly. Because I've had several clients that were in the transition process and that were, you know, gender presentation did not match how they felt gender identity-wise.
0: Can you walk us through? what we really should know about this unique intersectional experience of being BIPOC plus. And and please correct me, what's the term? Do I use BIPOC plus um, queer or BIPOC plus gender fluid? What's the accurate term that I I should be using?
1: Well, I don't think that there's like one specific term, because I know, but I do use the umbrella term queer people of color. And I know that denotes like that leaves the BIPOC, the black indigenous side of it. But, you know, within the queer community, queer people of color is something that, you know, is accepted. I know there's some like individuals who identify as a sexual minority and kind of like as an individual of color or BIPOC. So you can use either or interchangeably. I haven't heard a lot of pushback from that, but just as everything is always ever evolving. It's just more so like, well, today, as of today, I have not heard anything against using just the umbrella term, queer people of color. Okay,
0: okay. Yeah, so, but, yeah. Yeah, so what would be some nuances that we really should be paying attention to that's gonna be unique for queer people of color?
1: Yeah. So if we look at minority stress, like in itself, that's already a, the thing that tons of research has been done on, you know, just looking at, you know, black individuals or other BIPOC individuals and looking at their rates of like stress mental health depression, minority stress, you know, creates to higher numbers of that and more prevalent within the population. So if we consider the minority stress of being a a BIPOC individual, as well as the minority stress from being like LGBT, especially if we're looking at like suicidality and getting into those numbers and higher attempts, there's significantly, you know, more of those. So combining those two, some people and like in research have shown like, oh, well, there's this resiliency factor that can possibly, you know, equate to like being stronger. But what they leave out is that those individuals who identify as queer people of color do not feel like they fit in any area like group community there's this sense of like oh internalized you know racism as well as internalized like you know heterosexism and kind of like internalized that too as well so there's this combination of both of those together and kind of just where that they feel like they don't fit in a community so kind of bringing that more towards the table like where do you feel like you fit because if we think about you know, as you know, reality therapy, the sense of love and belonging, it's it's really a basic need for human individuals. So them going to kind of like these queer events or going to like these black events or people of color events, like where do they feel? Because if we think about some communities within kind of like people of color, even kind of like in my own personal life, like I want to live in a country where there's more people of color, there are higher rates of like, laws against you know being gay or being like a member so of the lgbt so we really have to consider the fact that they don't feel like they belong so i think that that's what that is missing because it's from both ends of the spectrum
0: oh it's like you're dealing with the stress from both sides of your identity and there's a feeling of a lack of safety that Mm -hmm. i can truly be this person I'm constantly essentially just assessing my environment. Is it safe for me to even express myself? Yeah. So Dr. Price, in your career as a person of color, what were some challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share?
1: Yeah. And again, related back to being in Arizona, especially starting off as an early professional, there was like a look for some of the, you know, older white population that I had at clients. They would just look like what you have to offer, you know, kind of like sizing me up. And then when they heard me speak, we actually had a session together. They're like, okay, all right. You know what you're talking about. So it's kind of like that sense of like authority that you have kind of like as a clinician and not saying you're trying to use your power over, but that, that, that is something that we do hold as kind of clinicians, especially in the room with a client. It wasn't there for me at first. It's kind of like the sense that I had to prove that, you know, I hold this space as a clinician to help you. And I definitely use kind of like a lot of client-centered approaches. So it's not saying like I'm trying to hold myself over them, but it was definitely more so like, oh, I'm looking at you. I don't think you have anything to offer. So there was this is a sense of like, kind of like, oh, I had to prove myself to the client.
0: It's privilege. Yeah. People going into sessions where there's this assumed authority or knowledge.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas in your case, you went in and it wasn't seen. And so you had to prove yourself. Yeah. And of course, I love that you described it where you weren't trying to fight to prove yourself. You knew your skills and abilities. You just needed to be there. Yes. Yeah. 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 So for you, what does it mean to be a black psychologist? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's significance as we talked about before with the lower percentage of numbers about who makes up psychologists. It means love. It means community. Because if I didn't have that support of my fellow two black psychologists in training community and love, like I wouldn't have made it. And I know that it was part them that helped me get through it, just as all the the community and the things that I try to do to get involved and help people, you know, that look like me, you know, just people of color in general to kind of help navigate kind of mental health challenges. Because some of the clients that I hear, and especially working at Wellness 360, most of the population that we see are people of color, hearing just today like what some therapists are saying to them and making assumptions and those microaggressions that they get. I'm just like, okay, well that reminds me why I'm doing this work. It reminds me of why I'm choosing to help individuals. So they will not have to, you know, have that in the therapeutic set of all settings where you're supposed to feel safe. They're not. And I'm not saying, you know, like it's all my white therapists out there. There are great ones, but I'm just hearing and like, wow, today in 2024, this is still existing, sad.
0: Mm -hmm. So, for you, there is hope, Mm -hmm. courage, connection, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's see, Dr. Price, uh, any other thoughts? What else would you like to share about your practice?
1: Yeah, so definitely I want to continue to to focus on reaching out. I definitely do want to hold more groups because I think there's so much healing when you get people together, having a healing circle healing from racial trauma is something that I really want to focus on because quite a few presentations that I have done have been about the intersection identities and then looking at trauma because it's kind of like it's an individual that has experienced minority, minority stress, you likely experience some trauma in your life. So I think kind of creating more healing circles is something that I want to incorporate in my practice. Looking at queer people of color, looking at BIPOC individuals, but just definitely creating more of a community belonging, really honing in on that, because there's a lot of invalidating environments out there. And I definitely want people to feel welcome, people to feel loved, people to feel cared
0: for. Mm-hmm. And how do we support you?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely can for falls these ways, but also kind of looking at it And if it's there's a breadth of like a research on kind of like how you can support queer people of color people of color in general and i'm pretty sure like you've talked about in other podcast sessions but kind of like looking at those looking at get the the literature like how can i be you know woke in a sense how can i help these individuals and let will talk about again the inclusive language how can i be welcoming if, it's, if i'm hanging up posters what am i doing am i including more of the environment am i using and i'm making kind of like a welcoming environment when I'm talking to them, but is the intake like, am I trying to use rapport? Am I not making assumptions? And I think just continuing to do all of that will be beneficial to, you know, to knit on the message of trying to heal BIPOC individuals and queer people of color.
0: Yeah, yeah. So any final thoughts?
1: I think I've said all, I'm usually kind of like a direct point person and I don't think there's like, anything else
0: if there isn't anything else well dr price uh, i really appreciate your time your insight and really the resilience and commitment that you've taken so far i really appreciate appreciate your time
1: thank you so much
0: a huge thank you to our listeners if you like what you've heard please share and subscribe to our podcast people of color and psychology Other ways to support us include registering for continuing education courses or making a donation on the Multicultural Counseling Institute's website. We value your input and appreciate your continued support. You can send us an email, a message on LinkedIn, or send us a voice message on our website. Until next time, this is your host, Jack Sun.